Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel in his sermon series titled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. And um, if you found that passage, we're going to look down in verse 34 is where I'll be starting. If I had mentioned a Presbyterian minister by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, this is it a name that you're familiar with? He's a Presbyterian minister up in Philadelphia for several, several years, great ministry there. Um, he was asked a, a question one time to his congregation, and I think his answer was really significant, but the question goes like this. It was, what would really happen if Satan took over the city? What would really happen if Satan took over the city where he was preaching, which was Philadelphia? And here's his answer. He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Uh, Michael Horton wrote a great book called Christless Christianity. And I want to share just a little bit of this quote with you. He says, I think the church today is so obsessed with being practical, relevant, helpful, and successful, perhaps even well-liked, that it nearly mirrors the world itself. He continues and he says, aside from the packaging, there's nothing that cannot be found in most churches today that could not be satisfied by any number of secular programs or self-help groups. And the reason that this trend exists today in America specifically is that a lot of us tend to adopt what, what I would term a pick-and-choose Christianity. We have portions of our Bible that we like to identify, we like to go to, and we're okay with those verses, and so we pick those verses out of the Bible while we leave other verses to the side, the verses that we don't like. We pick the ones we like, we discard the things that we don't like. We take some of God's word and apply it, but not all of God's word. Some of us might prefer to trade the word of Jesus for a woke Jesus. Some of us want a woke Jesus that accepts everybody and rejects nobody. Somebody want, some people want a woke Jesus that won't hurt anybody's feelings. A woke Jesus would never say any trigger words that might cause him to be canceled in the culture. Others desire what I would call a, a, a genie in the bottle, Jesus. That if we rub the lamp a certain way and say the words the right way, guess what? We've got three wishes. And you know what my first wish is going to be, genie, is for an innumerable amount of wishes. So I defeated the genie in the bottle thing, um, but I never found one of those lamps. So I just personally haven't got into that. Not very funny. Am I just too dry, too, too sarcastic up here? <laughs> Very merciful, Travis. Very merciful. It's good. Um, some of us have a genie in the bottle version of Jesus. We wish certain things would be given to us by God. Uh, we actually imagine that He will give us those things if, if we live a certain way or if we're faithful enough and do enough things. If we are not careful to take all of Jesus' words instead of some of Jesus' words, what we end up with is a Christless Christianity. It's a, a false Jesus that doesn't exist on the pages of Scripture. It's a Jesus of our own making. 
Um, Michael Horton, again, he goes on to uh, talk about this crisis Christianity, and, and he says this. He says, my concern is that we're getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church where the Bible is minded for relevant quotes, but it is largely irrelevant on its own terms. He says, God is used as a personal resource rather than known, worship, and trusted. Jesus Christ is not a savior. He is just a coach with a game plan for victory in our personal lives. Salvation is more a matter of us having our best life now than being saved from God's judgment by God himself. And so for all these reasons and for the trends that you all know very well in American culture and churches today, uh, we're going to continue on in our series that I've entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus. So I want to look at Matthew chapter 10 this Sunday, verses 34 through 39. Again, one of these areas that Jesus said some really hard things. Some of them are difficult to understand, to interpret. Some of them are difficult because they're offensive. And we just can't wrap our minds around that kind of a Jesus. We're going to look at three things in Matthew 10, 34 to 39 this morning. We're going to ask this question, what did Jesus say? Number two, why is it so difficult? And number three, how can we apply it in our own personal lives? What did Jesus say? Why was it so difficult? And how can we apply it in our personal lives? Now, Matthew 10, it's, it's hard to do these little quick hitters uh, in here, so I want to paint the context just a little, little bit if I can. Matthew 10 is a really important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a transitional chapter. Um, so I want to just step back and take a, a big picture view of what's going on in Matthew's Gospel. Most people think that the Gospel of Matthew has a five-fold structure that actually mirrors the five books of the Old Testament law of Moses. And Matthew's structure mirrors in some kind of way the law that Moses gave to Israel. Genesis through Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, mirrors the five-part structure to the Gospel of Matthew. And remember, Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, to Jewish people. And so we would expect a lot of things that would allude back to the Old Testament that the Jewish people knew so well in the first century. Um, there's five key speeches, we call them discourses, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The first, again, you know pretty well, is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And if we had to step back and ask, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about, we would say it's about how to live with the ethic of the kingdom. Jesus is prescribing a, a way of life for his people, a kingdom lifestyle. The second big discourse in Matthew is the commissioning of the 12. That's where we're going to pick up this passage, uh, verse 34 through 39, is going to come at the end when he commissions his 12 disciples. Uh, the third discourse is the parables in chapter 13. We're introduced to a way that Jesus communicated, not only to the disciples, but also to those who are on the fence about Jesus and the religious leaders. The parables are powerful because they communicated differently to different people depending on the ears that were listening to the truth of the parables. Matthew 13 introduces not only one parable, but a series of parables about the kingdom of God. They're stories about the kingdom. In chapters 18 through 20, you have a lot of unexpected, what I would call reversal stories. Uh, the way to be the greatest is to be the least of all, the servant of all. The way to go up to have a good relationship with God is actually to go down, to condescendingly serve and to give your life um, for other people in service to other people. It's all about the nature of the kingdom. Uh, God's ethic is, is radically different than the world's ethic. 
It is upside down and it is inside out. The way that the world operates is different than the way that the kingdom of God operates. And so chapters 18 through 20 are some really difficult passages, but great passages about the nature of life in the kingdom. And then finally, you've got the Olivet Discourse at the very end, chapters 24 and 25, that talk about the return of Christ to set up his kingdom largely, an end times theology there. The section we're going to look at closely, again, it's highlighted in red on the screen, is, is chapter 10, it's the commissioning of the disciples. And it's all about how Jesus is going to spread his word through these 12 fallible human beings that we know as the disciples of Christ and how they're going to take his ministry that he has started, his authority, his power. They're going to do a lot of the same miracles. They're going to preach the good news of the kingdom and spread that word everywhere they go. And by the time you get down to verse 34 in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples what they should expect when they bring the message of the kingdom to the world. He doesn't want them to be surprised. He's sending them out into a world that desperately needs the gospel. And here's what they can expect from that. You can expect families to be divided, self to be denied, and your life to be destroyed in a good way. That your life is going to be lost for the sake of the gospel. Um, when we realize and analyze the difficult sayings of Jesus, we can see that Jesus is just as dividing as he is uniting. Jesus is not necessarily comfortable. He is comfort comforting, but he's not necessarily comfortable with the message of the kingdom. C.S. Lewis is a, a great quote about Christianity in this realm. He kind of says, uh, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. The reason why he said that is because of the things that we're going to read here in Matthew chapter 10. They're difficult things to hear. Number one in your outline, number one, Matthew chapter 10, what did Jesus say? Look down at verse 34. I'm going to read all the way through verse 39. <clears throat> Jesus speaking here. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set men, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will ultimately find, find it. Um, immediately in this passage, we've got all sorts of questions going on. I have all sorts of questions going on. Uh, one of the first questions I have is, did Jesus contradict himself in this passage? I'm thinking about all the other gospel stories and all the other things that Jesus said in his earthly ministry. Does this line up with those things? Or is it a contradiction? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a great example. Jesus said about peace, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become, become sons of God. Well, if Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but then he said, blessed are the peacemakers, how do we make sense of that? Uh, skip back in the context of Matthew, chapter 10. Look, look to verse 13. Matthew 10, verse 13. 
And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Wait a second here. Uh, Peace returning to this house, withholding peace from this house. What does this have to do with Jesus not coming to bring peace, but yet still encouraging us to be peacemakers? Luke 1, 79 says, Jesus would give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so with all this information about peace and knowing that God is the God of peace, he's in fact the Prince of Peace, is what Isaiah refers to, the wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace passage. How do we make sense of what Jesus says about peace? I think the first thing that we have to do is is we have to establish some boundaries in God's word. We can't just, again, take some of what Jesus says and make a whole doctrine and theology about that. We've got to look at all of what Jesus said, make sure that it's in line with those things and understand it, each of those passages in their context. Elsewhere we know that one result of the gospel, when you trust Jesus Christ and Jesus alone for salvation, uh, Scripture says you have peace from God. To those who have believed, he justifies them and brings them into a, a peaceful relationship that otherwise wouldn't be there apart from Jesus Christ. Um, and so we know that, that we have peace with God through Christ. And so what is all this stuff about, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword in Matthew 10? Um, Joey, if you're out there, you'll appreciate the story. Do you guys, uh, I hate to ask this, don't admit it, maybe. Any Auburn fans out there? Auburn University? Okay, okay. I see some of you guys in the back just hesitant a little bit. I, pre- I appreciate that. What is your mascot? Are you a war eagle or are you something else? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Every time I look at, uh, it's just like, it's different. Is there a reason, is there a rhyme reason behind that? You don't, you don't know? Um, it's, it's weird things that are happening in the SEC over there. Auburn University has a... Uh, had a very historic tradition for many, many years, especially related to their football program. After every significant victory at Auburn, students would gather around a place called Tumor's Corner. You guys been there before? A Tumor's Corner used to exist, these two gigantic southern live oak trees. And they were a historic place on the campus. It was right on the corner. There was a gateway to the campus right on Tumor's Corner, and, and every time there was a significant victory, the students at Auburn, they would go out to these massive oak trees, just imagine some of the size of the trees that we have out in our yard out here, uh, and they would toilet paper the, the trees. It was a celebration, it was, it was a victory. We just won this battle on the gridiron, we won this big basketball game, and so we're gonna toilet paper the trees. It was on the nexus of campus, it was just their tradition. And so not too long ago, um, one of the University of Alabama football fans decided that he would take it upon himself to poison these two trees. Can you believe it? I I cannot imagine an Alabama football fan doing that. (laughs) Roll time. Um, Hey, not in support of poisoning trees on college campuses or anything like that, but the whole story, I think it was, I think it was kind of funny. I'm just going to say it up there. so this guy poisons these trees. Sorry, guys. I, I, I feel bad even saying that up here. Guy poisons these trees, and they would, never would have found out who it was. But he calls a radio program that was hosted in Birmingham, Alabama, 
to talk about the fact that he had poisoned these trees. They weren't dead yet, they would, but they would be dead soon. And the whole reason he did it was because Cam Newton, have you ever heard about this guy? Uh, he led Auburn to a one-point victory over Alabama one year in football, and what they did is they put uh, one of his suit coats around the Bear Bryant statue on the University of Alabama after they won. So this was revenge for this guy. He poisoned the tree, and, and the host on this radio program is listening to him basically confess what he did. And he said, do you not realize the legal legality of this matter? And this guy says, do you really think I care about the legality of the matter? And he says, roll tide. And that was the end of it. His name was Harvey Updike. And I'm going to share the story with you because he left a defining mark on the campus of Auburn University. And here's what I want to say that. At the first coming of Christ, when he came to die for the sins of the world, to give his life as a ransom for many, peace was not going to be the defining mark of his ministry in his first coming. Peace will be the defining mark of Jesus' ministry at his second coming, when he establishes his kingdom on the earth forever and ever. And the Prince of Peace will establish shalom forever in God's kingdom. But in this passage, Matthew 10, verse 34, you've got two things that are drastically juxtaposed. You have peace on the one hand, and you have a sword on the division on the other hand. And it's written in such a way that those two things couldn't be more different in this passage. And the point couldn't be any clearer. In the future, Jesus' ministry will culminate in eschatological peace. In the present, the message of Jesus will divide. And it will divide some of the closest relationships that people have in their life. It will divide families, not just cousin from cousin, not just brothers who are constantly fighting with each other. This is going to divide a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, a daughter-in-law from a mother-in-law. Verse 35 tells us that it will specifically divide families. The message of the cross is a message of division just as much as it is a message of unity and peace with God. Um, number two, why is this so difficult? Uh, through our Western eyes, these verses might not seem so startling. But to people reading this passage, Matthew 10, 34 through 39, this, this is all too uh, difficult to read and too much uh, driven to the heart. Remember that the first century culture was drastically different than our culture today. In the first century, the culture operated off of a honor and shame motif. The things that you were going to do, the decisions that you made, if you were going to be a person of virtue or not a person of character, was ultimately driven by this one question. Do you want to bring honor to the family and the society that you're a part of? Or are you going to do actions and make decisions that are going to bring shame instead? Today's culture is much more driven by power, status, and money. The first century culture was driven by honor and shame. And so individuals who lived upright were esteemed, not necessarily because they were successful, powerful, or wealthy, not necessarily because they had a certain status. 
Individuals in the first century culture were esteemed if they did things that were honoring to their family, if they brought honor to the family or didn't bring honor to the family. And, and, and here's what I want you to notice. Again, notice the specific relationships that are listed in this context. Verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And that mother-in-law relationship was extremely important for the first century because most of the time, the couple was going to live with one parent or the other parent. These are primary, familial, relational, connected relationships that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 10. It's not the same as two brothers having a conflict. This relationship between a father and the son is the strongest of relationships in the first century. A mother and a daughter is the strongest of relationships in the first century. And so let me, let me just ask you a question of the text. Does this mean when we trust Christ, God calls us to hate our parents? Are we supposed to literally take this? Luke's gospel is going to use a little stronger terminology. If you're going to follow me, you have to hate mother and father and come and follow me. All the teenagers are saying, please, Jesus, just make sure this means that I can hate my parents and be okay with it, right? Some of your, some of your teenagers are walking with the Lord and know better than that, and praise the Lord for it. Um, in Augustine's famous City of God, he defined virtue as people who, with character who can rightly order their lives. If you're going to be a person of virtue, it meant that the the right things in your life were given the right order of priority. Here's what he says in City of God. He says, But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. And Dante, the great poet, uh, put it this way. He ordered the seven deadly sins in a context of disordered loves. He said, the proud, envious, and wrathful are guilty of a misdirected love. The slothful and the guilty are deficient love. The avaricious, the gluttonous, and the lustful were guilty of excessive love. All those sins understood in the priority in which they are loved. Verse 37 says this in your text. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves sons or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so what Jesus says, this difficult saying, is, is literally telling us as Christians today, first and foremost, Jesus is calling us to put our loves in order. And God must be first. God must be loved more powerfully, more importantly, as a bigger priority than every other love that we could ever have in life. Our main objective as followers of Christ is to love God more than we love anything and to know God more than we know any other person. You can be great at what you do in life, and you can pursue hobbies. You can have a great career, which you study and grow stronger and perfect your craft. 
But regardless of all of those things, if God is not loved more than your books, your study, your career, he is not loved in his proper order. Your purpose for being in the world is to love God more than you love anything, to know God more than you know anyone, and to pursue God more than you pursue anything or anyone. First and foremost, God is calling us to put our loves in order, and God must be first. Secondly, he's calling us in this passage to deny ourselves, to no longer live for self, self self-centered lives, but now we live for God in God-centered lives. Look at verse 38 and 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The first thing that means is that loving the Lord God above all other things is going to be painful. You're going to suffer if you love God more than the world and the things in the world. To take up your cross and and follow God means that um, it's, it's going to cost. There's a it's a really hard thing that I, that I do every year when TBC baptizes kids. Usually we do baptisms at Easter time at, at Tulsa Bible Church. And, and one of the things I try to get a, a, some kind of read on, we should baptize believers only at TBC, is has this little uh, boy or little girl, have they counted the cost of following Christ? Do they know anything, any sense of this thought of, of taking up your cross and following me, of putting themselves to the side and putting God first in their relationships. Um, Why is this such a difficult saying from Jesus? Because following God is costly. Putting yourself to the side is not easy. It often involves suffering. It often involves pain. Uh, Number three, how do we apply Uh, what Jesus is saying to us in Matthew 10. Number one, following Jesus does not mean your life will be easier. Following Jesus does not mean your life will be easier. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Uh, What he means is the free gift of salvation doesn't cost you anything. All the work of salvation has been done by Jesus for you so that you don't have to do it yourself because you cannot do it yourself. But living and and walking with the Lord and living in a God-centered lifestyle is costly. It is difficult. Salvation is free. Living the Christian life means putting yourself to the side over and over and over again, living for other people and living for God first instead of yourself. Popular preaching today promises an easier, more comfortable life for Christians. Matthew 10 is explicit. That's not always the case for Christians. It's not always the case for Christian marriages. Marriage is tough. If you're going to live in a way that glorifies God and put your spouse before yourself, that is not an easy thing to do. You're going to have to sacrifice of yourself. When you and I read this passage in our country with with churches everywhere in a free nation, with a Christian history, it might not seem too startling, but you read this passage in Saudi Arabia right now, Mom and dad are are Muslim Islamic families and and they hear that you trust Christ and you're going to be banished from the family. All of a sudden, Matthew 10, 34 through 39 takes on a completely different meaning. 
We can't just read Matthew 10 through our cultural eyes. We've got to see it through other cultural eyes as well, especially in the first century to the original audience. And for this, for them, it meant persecution. Being a Christian often meant suffering for the sake of the gospel. There's something to be said of of Christians who carefully read the gospels. And when we see these difficult sayings, we count the the costs of Christianity. And we willingly, um, with the encouragement of the body of Christ around us, walk in a way that's going to ultimately please God as followers of Christ. Bishop J.C. Ryle put it this way, a Christian must be willing to offend his family rather than offending the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus must have more loyalty to your heart than any other family member, than any other person, than any other thing. Young folks, if you love a person of the opposite sex and that person begins to be loved more than Jesus, that is an unhealthy relationship. Stop in your tracks. Get your bearings. You make sure that Jesus is loved more than any other dating relationship or any other relationship that you have in your life. Married couples, if you love your spouse more than you love Jesus, stop in your tracks. That is an unhealthy marriage. God has to be first in your relationship for the husband, for the wife. As for both people, if Jesus is not first in that relationship, it is not a healthy relationship. Parents, if you love your kids more than you love Jesus, stop. That is not a healthy parameter for you to continue living your life. Love your kids, yes, love them as much as you can, but not as much as you love Jesus at the end of the day. Following Jesus means loosening your grip on the most intimate of family relationships in order to grab tighter onto Jesus and to make sure that he is worshiped and he is loved more than any other relationship that you have. Number two, spiritual bloodlines are thicker than those that are physical. Have you ever heard this phrase, blood is thicker than water? Spiritual bloodlines are thicker than physical bloodlines, according to truth and according to the scripture. What that means is that the bloodline that began at the cross of Calvary, Jesus shed blood on your behalf, brings you into a completely new family. Now that you are in a family not from natural birth, not because of the decision of a husband and a wife, not because you were born into this world with physical bloodline living and breathing, just like little Caleb was born into the world. You are, you are born into the family of God when you trust Christ and him alone for salvation. And that gives you a spiritual bloodline, not just a physical bloodline. Now you're in a spiritual bloodline in Christ, not a physical bloodline that's in Adam. And that spiritual bloodline in Christ is infinitely more important than your physical bloodline into Adam and into this world. John 1.11 says this, Jesus came to his own, his own people, and they did not accept him, but to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The doctrine of the new birth means that we are born into a new family, spiritually, into a new heavenly bloodline. God is our father, and Jesus is our savior, and he is our brother. The doctrine of adoption tells us that we have been brought into a completely different heavenly eternal family and now we have rights to the inheritance from the Father. What this means is your spiritual bloodline in Christ is deeper, thicker, and more important than your physical bloodline in this world. Tony Evans is a, a DTS pastor 
and he gave a, a strong indictment to the church. He said that the, the Sunday morning hour in America where most people go to church is the most segregated hour in America. Because even though we're believers with different ethnicities, different people from us, different languages, we tend to be divided unnecessarily. A spiritual bloodline unites you to a family that has different ethnicities in it. Now it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. The dividing wall has been uh, overcome by the cross of Calvary. Now we should have more unity with people that don't share our same last name, maybe even our same skin color. But we should have a deeper, tighter, connected unity with their spiritual bloodline even than our physical bloodline from Adam. Now the family of God takes priority over our physical families. And, and listen, that doesn't mean that you forsake mother and father. That doesn't mean that you walk away from your family relationships that God has given you by his grace. It means you strengthen those family lines. It means you build them. You do everything you can to bring your sons, your daughters, your cousins, your nephews into the kingdom of God and into this spiritual bloodline. It means that you value that spiritual bloodline so much that you're willing to say a difficult thing to a family member and share the gospel and the truth of what the message of Jesus is, that it does divide people, but ultimately it unites you to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus said some really hard things. Do not think that I've come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. We don't do away with that passage just because it doesn't make sense to us or it seems harsh to us. We embrace that passage for the truth of the gospel and the truth of the spiritual bloodline that it communicates to us today and for us. Uh, let's pray.